Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Paul Carter on the show. Carter is an attorney with more than 20 years of experience in investigation and trial work and the author of the new biography, Richard Nixon, California's Native Son. Please enjoy our conversation. One small note at the top, I did record this podcast in a very echoey room. My apologies for the sound quality on my end. Paul's was perfect. Please enjoy our conversation. Paul, I'm going to start with a quote quotation for you, and it's from F. F. Scott Fitzgerald. It says, life is a comedy for those who think and a tragedy for those who feel. Show me a hero and I will write you a tragedy. Uh, Would you say Nixon's life was a comedy, tragedy, or something else? I would say it's both. It's it's more of like an all-American story where it it has, you know, great heights and then also terrible lows and and then recovery and and rejuvenation. So, I've read a, one other Nixon biography, uh, but I'm curious before you wrote it, which which biography did you uh, prefer of Nixon? Is there anyone who influenced you or biographies that you think covered Nixon well? Obviously, by writing a bi- biography yourself, you're contributing to a conversation that's been ongoing. What, where would you say kind of you started or uh, influenced you? I started off with Fawn Brody's uh, biography, and um, that was pretty hostile towards uh, Nixon and you know, I, I grew up, you know, in the in I was born in the '60s and grew up in the '70s, and and was a product of, of public education. And so most everything I knew about uh, Richard Nixon was post resignation and not very favorable. I then read Lou Cannon's um, One of Us, and I thought that was interesting. Jonathan Aiken has a Nixon a Life that I I enjoyed, and Irv Gelman has several books on Nixon that I followed, and those all kind of culminated in piquing my interest. Okay. And then why does your focus on, and which is embedded in the title, his kind of regional origins, what do you hope that you're adding to the conversation by having an element that t- does tend to focus on California quite a bit more than some of the biographies that I've read? My knowledge of Nixon was always, basically he was you know a bitter, insecure man that was an outsider as a, a youth and had a chip on his shoulder. And, you know, was rejected by the cool kids and started his own club. And 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 that was basically what my knowledge of Richard Nixon was. My biography, the reason why I wrote my biography is I was looking to make a map of Nixon's life in Southern California. And I was doing that because I had been talking to the mayor of Whittier and asked him if they had all the locations designated where Richard Nixon had lived. I had never even been to Whittier at the time I had that conversation with him. And he said they kind of lost track of it all. And, you know, I love like, you know, going on the, the Freedom Trail in Boston. I love going into, you know, lower Manhattan and seeing where George Washington was and, you know, Francis Tavern and everything. And and so I just looked at it like I'm going to just make this map of, of Whittier. And Whittier did things like they renumbered their streets. Whittier was actually two separate areas. There's Whittier and East Whittier. When they when Whittier incorporated East Whittier, they renumbered all the streets, which made it difficult to try and find things when I was trying to build my map. And I ended up getting 200 oral histories from Nixon's intimates and friends. 
from from his his time growing up in Whittier, basically in Yorba Linda. And as I was reading him, I was just looking for, you know, where's the soda fountain that they went to? What was the name of the the restaurant that you know that they went to when they were going to Whittier College? What did they do on Saturday night? You know, what what parks did they go to? But everyone in these oral histories, which had that information that that I did use for the map, they were talking about this life and how successful he was, and this person who was the exact opposite of, you know, a bitter, insecure outsider. He was, you know, the he was voted best man of his best man on campus in his uh, graduating year of college, and he was freshman class representative, sophomore or freshman class president and sophomore class representative, and you know, student body vice president. His junior year and, and received more votes in that election than either of the candidates for the student body president. And then he was student body president in his senior year. And and that made me realize that there was much more to tell about Richard Nixon. And I and so I I decided to focus on California because water Watergate sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Every time you bring up Richard Nixon, it's Watergate and it's, you know, that's that's everything. And I I've I I and I and I'm not saying that I did this by a strategic plan. I'm not I don't want to take credit for being more intelligent than I am. I I I kind of stumbled into the idea focusing on California because he was born here, lived here, practiced law here, was a congressman, senator. Then he was off to Washington for the presidency or vice presidency. He came back to practice law in Los Angeles, then went to New York, was elected president, then bought La Casa Pacifica in San Clemente and spent a significant amount of time there. And, and then after he resigned, that's where he recovered and, you know, first his exile and then his rejuvenation. And then he went back out to, to New York and then he died and he's born in Yorba steps away from where he, he's buried in Yorba steps away from where he was born. And so you could bring his whole life in full circle from the Southern California perspective. And by doing that, you can remove really all of the political issues and take a look at the person. And no one ever takes a look at the person because he's been so villainized throughout history Nobody, nobody actually looks at any of his his life other than as him being a villain, and and that's what my biography has allowed me to do, which paints an entirely different portrait of Richard Nixon than what people are used to. Mm. I'm a big fan of Robert Caro's big biographies of Lyndon Johnson, um, and at the beginning of the first volume, he spends a lot of time talking about Central Texas. He gives you kind of the topography, the flora, the fauna. So you really get a picture of where this person's coming from. How would you describe Whittier to someone? What, what's the city like? What's, what's a brief biography of the city so we can kind of get an understanding for those who haven't been there? Whittier is a, it's a small community. It was, it was founded as a Quaker colony in 1887 by Achille Pickering and Jonathan Bailey. It was one ranch and they bought the entire ranch. It had one house on it and they, they, they split it up into different plots. And so it has a downtown area, which is at Greenleaf in Philadelphia, that really is the same today as it was when Nixon was alive. And, and keep in mind that Richard Nixon's, his, his mother's family, the Millhouses came out from Indiana in like 1897. And then his father, Frank Nixon, came out from Ohio several years later. And once Frank and Hannah married, they ended up moving to Yorba Linda. 
and Yorba Linda only had a couple hundred people when they were there, they built their house and that's where Richard Nixon was born. And, you know, that was, they described it as a, you know, a, a place that you would go through without even knowing that you went through it. It was such a small town with horse fountains, you know, tumbleweeds flowing through it. You know, the Nixon boys would run to school barefoot every day. And so just a really rugged rural environment. And then they moved to Whittier when he was nine and, and they were in the, the part of East Whittier, which was unincorporated then. And it was considered out in the country compared to Whittier proper. You know, the, the towns, you know, Los Angeles now, it, it, it's just one great, you know, big, vast stucco, endless sea of homes. But back then the communities were balkanized. You know, you, you'd have a town of Whittier and then you'd have a town of Pasadena. You'd have a town of Pomona. You'd have a town of Yorba Linda and you'd have 17 miles, you know, basically of a cow path between them. And along one of those cow paths, that's, that's where East Whittier was. And that's, that's where Nixon and, you know, his, his family lived. And so it was very, very rural. Okay. I want to ask a question about you and your background as a lawyer. How, how do you think that influenced your construction and writing of this book? It influenced me greatly because I, I was not a trained historian and I never thought that I would write a biography of anybody. And I look at evidence. As, as, as an attorney, people come to me and they retain me and they always tell me whatever they feel like they need to tell me. And then I need to go and look at the evidence. And, 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 and I'm, I have a professional career based on, you know, listening to people's words and then looking at what the actions actually speak to. And so for me, looking at evidence is always the key. And that's what made this so fascinating for me was layering the evidence onto the, the skeleton bones of his, his life. You know, he was born in 1913 and he died in 1993. And what took place in between, we know the dates that he was, you know, went to high school, college, World War II, elected to various political offices, run for governor, you know, leaves California, and then going through and finding the evidence to put the meat on those bones and reconstruct it. I, I couldn't have done it without being an attorney. Yeah. And how do you feel like that influenced how you approached your interviews and your oral histories with uh, some of his people that he grew up around? I think it influenced me because I, I, I always took the approach of I'm not writing one way or the other. This is just what the evidence says. I'm, I want to know what, what, what is the proof here and, and what does it show? And I was always straightforward with anybody when I would ask them questions and I would tell them, this is what I believe your quote was. And, and, and they would correct me if they thought that I was wrong. And, and I would, you know, I would I would accept the corrections when people gave them to me if they said no you misunderstand because I want to be clear about what they were saying and what I was going to use and I really focused on what the documentation is and and what I could see so it's not quite as tainted by everyone has their own prism through which they see the world and you could have three people you know witness a crime and they'll tell you three different things all of it will be you know that something took place but you 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 have to you have to get into the, the 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 evidence and see what it really demonstrates, and that's that's what was really fascinating to me. Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump into his uh, life. I want to start by talking about his parents, who they were, 
And then can you also briefly talk about the role that Quaker faith had in forming Nixon as a person? Absolutely. Hannah Milhouse came out from Indiana, like I said, in the late 1800s, and she was one of many children. Her her father, Franklin Milhouse, and his wife, Almira, they came out with his his mother, who was Elizabeth. She was a preacher. She would travel around on horseback giving sermons. And they were very solid members of the community. They, they, they did quite a bit of work in the community and had a very solid reputation and were raising all of their, their children. They were you know, putting them into Woody, what was then a fledgling you know, kind of community school between high school and uh, college, which ultimately developed into Whittier College. And they had a beautiful home. It's now off of Starbucks in, in Whittier, where they were raising all their children. And along came Frank Nixon, and he was a tremendously hard worker. Frank Nixon was the type of person that, you know, as he worked his way across the United States, he did all sorts of odd jobs. He was a sheep shearer, barber, glass blower, ox team driver, a bricklayer, carpenter, house painter, steeplejack, tractor driver, potato farmer, oil-filled rustabout, a potter, hand-crank telephone installer, an electrical linesman, and ultimately a streetcar motor man, which brought him to Whittier because of the, the red car line. And he really believed in, you know, a, a biblical verse of, you know, in the sweat of thy foul face shalt thou, thou eat bread. And he was a very dedicated man. And they met on Valentine's Day, 1908. What's really fascinating is they were married 131 days later, and that four-month courtship resulted in a a 48-year marriage until his death on September 4, 1956, and they had five children. They were all named for English kings, except for Don, who was named for Francis. He was actually Francis Donald, and two of them died at early ages. The first was Arthur, who died. He was born in 1918. He died in 1925 probably from tubercular meningitis. It came on pretty quickly. And then Harold was their firstborn son, and he died in 1933 when Richard Nixon was a junior in college. And that left Richard Nixon the oldest. And they they were very devout in their Quaker faith when they were in Yorba Linda, which was a very small town. Frank Nixon helped build the Quaker church there. This still stands in the, in the heart of downtown. He led a Bible study class, which Jessamine West, who was a uh, novelist, she was one of his students and said that Frank Nixon was the greatest Sunday school teacher she ever had. But they were, they were very dedicated to their religion and, and their Quaker roots that, that they had throughout you know, his entire upbringing and youth. And Richard Nixon actually remained a member of the East Whittier Friends Church his entire life. Yeah. And I think we, and I'm guilty of this often myself, where we kind of project some secularism back on and back onto the, you know, the past. And, you know, when someone's really devout, we kind of point it out as what, what's interesting about that. And it, when in reality, a lot of people, you know, religion was practiced by most people. And so, you know, it, it, it wasn't unusual to be very devout in your faith. So I don't want to overemphasize that, but I thought it was important to bring up. The next thing I want to talk about is trauma. Obviously the loss of the ranch and the death of his siblings left some kind of impact on Nixon. What do we know from the evidence of the impact that those traumatic events had on him? 
He was devastated when his brother Arthur died, and he wrote a long essay about his his brother Arthur and how he you know would look into his eyes and see his his curls in his hair and and how he you know thought about him and it 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 took him several you know months to mourning to 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 and for the entire family to get over that entire that that loss and it came on so fast and richard nixon at the time you know he was born in 1913 and this was in 1925 so he was only 12 when his brother died and with Harold, his the next one that passed away in 1933 when he was a junior in college, he died from tuberculosis where he had a long-suffering uh, decline that started in the late 1920s. And the family, actually Hannah moved to Prescott, Arizona, thinking that the, the, the arid climate would take or be more healthy for him. And she took in other boarders that, that had tuberculosis and then the Nixons, Frank and Don and, and Richard, would drive out to Prescott on weekends. And back in those days, you know, it was it was dirt roads and it would be like a 16-hour trip and, and visit with them. And so that separation that happened when he was in his high school years was very difficult on them. And, and the suffering that he saw his brother go through. And at the same time, his father... You know, back in those days, there were there were sanatoriums that you could uh, get public assistance and and go to. But his father did not believe in taking uh, handouts and wouldn't utilize those. And so Harold was in their home and and actually died. It's there's a really sad story, which happened when the day before Hannah's their mother's birthday in 1933. It was on March 6th. Harold came to Richard and said that he saw an advertisement for a cake mixer and he wanted to buy it for their mother for her birthday, which was the next day, March 7th. And so they went up to Richard Nixon had a car and he drove him up to Whittier Hardware and they bought the cake mixer, had it wrapped and they took it home and put it up in their closet. And the next morning, Richard was getting ready for for school and his brother Harold said he wasn't feeling well and asked Richard to hurry up and 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 go off to school if he could so that Harold could rest because the bathroom was adjacent to the room that Harold was resting in and so Richard said okay and 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 left for school and about two or three hours later he was in the school library and the librarian came up with a note that he had to rush home and as he arrived home he saw that his brother Harold had passed away and they were wheeling out his body to take to the funeral home and so he had died on their mother's birthday and, you know, just a, a very, very sad and difficult process to go through. And Richard Nixon said that there, you know, it would be years before he could talk about his brother without tearing up. Yeah, not not to psychoanalyze, but I mean, this is part of the biography game, which is, I mean, do you see kind of his pursuit of publicity and power as ways to kind of not suppress, but a way to deal with those experiences of grief and trauma. I don't know if it was uh, a way for him to deal with that. I will say that he was always a go-getter. He, even in Yorba Linda, he would run to the library as, as, as a, you know, a small child, his mom taught him to read. And so he, he, he started off in first grade. He skipped second grade. And uh, he would run to the library barefoot, and sometimes twice a day, 
uh, checking out books. And he was he was always somewhat competitive. And even, you know, like in eighth grade, which would have been in the 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 around the time of Harold's passing, or not Harold, I'm sorry, but uh, Arthur's passing, you know, by that time he was already eighth grade class president and achieving success. And so there's no question that the loss of his family, his brothers, you know, had an impact on him, but I don't know that it it transformed him into anything that he wasn't already because he was already a, a, a very driven person. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the snubbing. So you mentioned this previously, he was snubbed in some social activities in college and decided to create his own organization. What, what does that tell us about Nixon that he would go out and create his own club? Well, that whole theory that he was snubbed is, is, is basically a complete fabrication. The reality is this, when he went to Whittier College, Vern Landreth was brought in as a new basketball coach and athletic director, and Chief Wallace Newman was brought in as the new football coach. And each of them had successful high school careers, and they each brought in many students from their respective high schools to Whittier College. And these two groups immediately bonded as a on the football field at the beginning of their their freshman year. And Richard Nixon was on the freshman football team with them. And that group, there was, at the time, Whittier College only had sorority, or not sororities, but societies, one for the men called the Franklins and three for the women. The Franklins like to take their annual pictures in tuxedos, which by the way, they borrowed from the members of the Glee Club. And they like to host afternoon teas and things like that. So Richard Nixon, and, 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 and important to note here is there's a man named Dean Triggs that was a sophomore, and he had gone away to Colorado State for his freshman year of college and came back to California to Whittier where he lived and, and enrolled in Whittier. But he had been in a fraternity in Colorado, and he was on the football team, and he said, we should, we should form our own society for us as athletes. And when they were going through the process of determining, and Dean Triggs was really the instigator of that, and as they were going through the process of determining, well, who could who could help lead us so that we're not just another athletic organization? And they had a meeting, and one of the upperclassmen said, you know, I heard of this, you know, Dick Nixon, and, and I thought, you know, who is he, some lowly, you know, freshman? And, and Nixon was only 17 at the time. But he's, he describes, you know, he stood eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder with us, and I knew he was the right person. And so they picked Richard Nixon to be the president of their group. Now, he's already, you know, freshman class president. And they put together this group, and they, they intentionally made themselves more informal than the Franklins. Whereas the Franklins took their annual pictures in tuxedos, the Orthogonians, which is the name of the group that they formed, they took their pictures in white shirts with open collars and they were seen on campus as a no neck and merry crew and before richard nixon and the orthogonians came along the franklins dominated school politics but once richard nixon and his no neck and merry crew established themselves on campus they won six of the next eight student body elections when richard nixon ran for student body president in his senior year a good friend of his from from the Franklins ran against him because it was always an Orthogonian against a Franklin. 
And he even said that the only reason why they picked him to run because everyone knew Nixon was going to win was that, you know, he was the only one that would do it, but he was still a good friend of his and they remained good friends. His name was Dick Thompson for years after that. And, and it really shows that it wasn't, you know, him being an outsider. It was all the jocks coming together and saying, we don't want that group. We want this new cool group. And they formed that group and, and, in terms of success in high school and, and even in college, you know, these are the depression years when nobody had any money and the students, especially, you know, they couldn't even afford a 10 cent tamale. A, a lot of them tuition was only $125 a semester, by the way, but the, the school had to even pay some of the professors in land because they didn't have the funds to, to pay them. But at that time, the Nixon family, they had their Nixon store and they had, quite a bit of success with it. Richard Nixon was one of only six people in Whittier College that owned a car. And he bought it for $300 back at a time when wages were about 30 cents an hour, which would take over six months of full-time work just to, just to earn enough to buy a car. So he wasn't, he wasn't this outsider that was rejected by the cool guys. He was actually part of the cool guy group. And he acted in student theater. He sang in the Glee Club. He had he owned two tuxedos. He you know, in his senior year, his 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 classmates wrote him a letter and said that out of every graduating class, there's always one person that's an outstanding person, and we feel that you're destined to be that person. So this whole story of him being the outsider, excluded with a chip on the shoulder, that's what's really inspired me to write this book because it's 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 just false. And it's demonstrably false it, when you look at the evidence. Yeah. Let's talk about a, a rejection that is a verifiable fact, which was his rejection from the FBI, which we learned later was about budget cuts, but it still had an impact. So my question to you is, how would Richard Nixon's life be different if he became an FBI agent? Wouldn't that be interesting? He, he said that he didn't even know that he was uh, rejected from the FBI until years later when he was vice president. He had J. Edgar Hoover look into it. The dean of Duke Law School always told Richard Nixon, go home to Whittier and practice law if you want to run for office. And ultimately, Richard Nixon always did want to run for office. So he probably would have stayed the same had he didn't been in the FBI because World War II came along and he served in World War II. And at the end of World War II, he was actually terminating war contracts in, in New York and living in Maryland and was incredibly successful at it. Within just a few months, he was awarded a letter of commendation for his service terminating war contracts. And he had served previously to that with a, a, a successful businessman from New York named James Stewart that you know, Nixon could have easily stayed in, in, in New York after the war if he wanted to and practice law, but he chose to come back to Whittier and take on Jerry Voorhees, who by that time was a five-term Democrat congressman and was voted as having you know, the third safest seat in the House of Representatives and was you know, voted the best congressman west of the Mississippi. And Nixon came home to take him on. So more than likely, he probably would have come home to, from you know, from the FBI, had he gotten a job there and, and, and followed his political path that he was seeking. Okay. We're going to skip his military career and discuss, jump right to his congressional campaign. Sure. Uh, my, my cursory understanding is that it seems like 
his success was a combination of his personal charisma, but also some of the gerrymandering efforts that the Republican dominated state legislature ultimately gave him success. Uh, but I do want to ask you, given that uh, red baiting has kind of returned to the screen uh, in Oppenheimer, uh, can you discuss the role that you think red baiting played in Nixon's attacks on his opponents? And what would you attribute his success in that congressional campaign to more to gerrymandering or his personal charisma? The, the, the key to that race were the five debates that Jerry, Jerry Voorhees agreed to engage in with Richard Nixon. And that was the, that was the, that was the key to the whole shooting match. The gerrymandering, no, because they, they redistrict every 10 years. And this was a 1946 race. And Voorhees had won in 36, 38, 40 when they were redrawn, 44. He pretty soundly beat the, well, 42 before that and 44. And in 44, he pretty soundly beat his Republican opponent. The, the district was very large. It went from Pasadena all the way out to Pomona and Whittier in between. And Richard Nixon was just home from the war. Red baiting really wasn't an issue at that time. And he was he was more looking for GI uh, benefits and his campaign speeches would be more about the difficulties the GIs were coming home to, the the housing crunch, the the need for education, the the inability to afford housing and pay for education, and those sorts of issues about how to help GIs. And he he received a note from Jerry Voorhees saying that, you know, Voorhees looked forward to kind of, you know, debating him. And, and so he challenged Voorhees to five debates and they did one in each area. They did one out in Pomona, one in Whittier, one in South Pasadena, you know, one out in San Gabriel Valley. And, and, and they were they were scattered around the the the, the district. And these debate, you know, like right now, if you have two. You have a congressman and an unknown challenger taking them on, then you have almost no one show up to the debates, even now. And back in those days, you know, the Republican Party washed their hands of the whole thing as as a, as an organized structure and told this little group of, of people in Whittier, go ahead and do whatever you want in this race. And and the Republican Party even encouraged people to donate money to the Republican Party so they can spend it elsewhere instead of on Nixon's race. But Nixon, those debates, they they developed tremendous traction. And 26 of the newspapers in the district ended up endorsing Richard Nixon. And that's what really was the difference in that race was those debates where you know, there was a guy named Chet Holyfield that was a congressman that was talking to Jerry Voorhees after one of them. And Voorhees went up to him and said, you know, how'd I do? And Congressman Holyfield said, you know, he just cut you to pieces because Richard Nixon was a tremendous debater and had been since his middle school years. Do you think Richard Nixon would have been Eisenhower's vice president if he wasn't from California? I, I don't know. I don't know because, you know, at the same time, you had Earl Warren as governor of California. And there's a big discrepancy, you know, where the, in the 1952 Republican convention where they say that, you know, some have written that Richard Nixon got on the train and turned, you know, the delegates towards Eisenhower from Earl Warren. And then a lot of political people would say, well, you know, how strong of a government governor can you be if you can't keep control of your own delegation? And 
it's it's curious to to think about whether or not an Earl Warren would have been selected as vice president from a state such as California, because California is so important to those elections. But Richard Nixon in 1950 in the race against Helen Gahagan Douglas, he won that race by the largest margin of votes of any Senate candidate in, in the country that year. And so that's what really put him on the scene in terms of success to the Eisenhower ticket. Yeah. Later, he runs for president in 1960 against this little known guy, John F. Kennedy. <laughs> and, you know, if we're talking about charisma, that's a, that's a tough challenge for anybody. And then afterwards, he kind of has some time to work on other projects, including a book called Six Crises. And can you talk about the purpose of that book, you think, for Nixon? Like, what was, what was the drive to, to write that? And what do you think it was? What, what did it result in, in Nixon's mind? I'm trying to think of the lady's full name. It was St. John's was her last name. And she was, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I can't think of what her full name was, but she was a, a, a news reporter, a, you know, a Hearst newspaper reporter back in the early days. You know, her father was a very successful trial attorney here in Los Angeles. And, 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 and she was a she was like a tiger of a newspaper reporter in in a male dominated profession you know in 1920s and she had a large uh, ranch out by Whittier and Richard Nixon used to deliver groceries from the Nixon store there and so she knew Richard Nixon Adela Rogers St. John's was her full for, her full name and she knew Nixon since he was a boy and she persuaded him to write the the book Six Crises and and she helped him write it and 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 rather, you know, Richard Nixon wasn't the type of person that um, would sit and reminisce a lot for 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 general public consumption. And so, I, I in terms of like writing an autobiography after the 1960 race, instead of doing it as an autobiography, he took six seminal moments in his professional life and wrote about those six moments. As opposed to writing a biography from you know birth to to that point in his life, but it was Adela Rogers St. John wrote it with him and was 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 a tremendous asset in the development of that book. And she went on to write several books like The Verdict and Honeycomb. So afterwards, he ran for governor. Why do you think he lost? He lost for a couple of reasons. If you, and 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 it's it's it you have to take a look at the California scene at the time because the development of this is fascinating. You know, 1948, you have Ronald Reagan is a Truman Democrat. You have uh, Earl Warren's the governor of California. You have Goodwin Knight, who's the lieutenant governor. And then in 1950, you have Nixon become the senator, and you also have Bill Nolan from San Francisco, whose family owns the San Francisco Chronicle, I believe. And, 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 and so you have all of these tremendously successful California Republicans. Bill Nolan becomes the president of the Senate. Earl Warren becomes the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Richard Nixon becomes the vice president. And once they, the, the, the Republicans lost the Senate, Bill Nolan's no longer president of the Senate. Goodwin Knight was elevated to governor when Earl Warren was put on the, the Supreme Court, and then he's reelected in his own right. Well, by 1958, Bill Nolan wants to run against Goodwin Knight for the governorship. 
And he, so he gives up his Senate seat to run against Goodwin Knight. Well, Goodwin Knight, instead of defending his Senate seat against Bill Nolan, he runs for Bill Nolan's Senate seat. And both of them lose. And the 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 swapping of seats and political offices so turned off the public that the Republicans basically lost all the races in 1958. And it fractured the party. And and throughout this time period, I brought up Ronald Reagan because Ronald Reagan is slowly moving from a Truman Democrat into the Republican Party, and he's doing it with a great friendship for, of, of Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon is a you know believes in the Jeffersonian principles of limited government and fiscal conservatism, and so in 1962 the Republican Party comes to Richard Nixon and says you're the only one that can heal this whole fractured party in in the state, come and run, and ultimately he agrees to do it thinking he can unite the party, but then you have the problem of the John Birch Society, which Richard Nixon refused to take the endorsement of and actually campaigned openly against and he refused to endorse any candidates in the general election that were unless they would denounce the john birch society and at the time the democrat party had over a million vote advantage over the republican party so for for richard nixon to win in 62 he has to have every single solitary republican vote for him and over a million democrats and with that with, with the denouncing of the John Birch Society, he gives up unifying the Republican Party. And so it's, it, there, there's no way he can win. But he, he, he did it in a, the, the initial reasoning behind it was to bring the Republican Party together and, and heal those, those fractures that were developed from the 1958 race. And throughout that period, by 1964, with his friendship of Ronald Reagan, then Ronald Reagan is, you know, a, a full-fledged Republican. So it's really fascinating, though, to look at that history and all of those power brokers and what happened to him in that whole process. We could probably spend this entire podcast talking about his presidency, the Vietnam War, his visits in China, a lot of those things. But those things have been covered in so many biographies of Nixon that I'm kind of focusing in our conversation on the creases uh, between those events, because I think that informs a lot. But I do want to talk about his resignation, his impeachment and resignation, because I think it is important to just for you to kind of air out something that you mentioned in your book, obviously, but also on your jacket cover, which is an indication that it's a message you wanted to get across to readers, which is that you think that Watergate and the subsequent resignation should not summarize Richard Nixon. Can you defend that thesis for us? If you look at Richard Nixon, there's a couple of points to 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 take into consideration that, and one of them has to do with the California thesis, the thesis of him being a Californian. You know, when I, I talked about earlier when he was in Yorba Linda and his father, you know, had the, the helped build the French church there. Well, when they moved over to Whittier and they were living in the unincorporated area of East Whittier, they lived across the street from the East Whittier French church. And as you had mentioned, you know, everybody back in those days was was quite religious and everyone in the community the east Whittier friends church was the only church in the area and so it didn't matter if you're a baptist or presbyterian when you moved into that area you went to that church well that church was really interesting because 
they they wouldn't do anything unless they had unanimity in their decision making. And they also had silent services. And so they would have serious times of reflection, but then they would also have these robust discussions where they would consider all aspects of all opinions and 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 what to do and 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 reach a consensus on what they're going to do. And when you look at you know Watergate or the presidency or the tapes. A lot of what you hear and a lot of things is, is a lot of robust discussion that kind of it, it, it traces itself back to those early days for him being raised in the church in the manner in which they dealt with problem solving. It was, you know, we're going to consider all options. We're going to talk about everything. And I think that's one fascinating area there. With regard to Watergate and resignation, Richard Nixon started debate in like the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And he 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 started being successful in debate at those ages. And by by the time he's in his freshman and sophomore year of high school, he's winning these constitutional oratorical contests that were sponsored by the Los Angeles Times. And he's be he's the champion at these constitutional oratorical contests that are debating over the Constitution. And he really studied the Constitution and and he came to the conclusion in his high school years that the Constitution was the finest document ever struck by the hand of men. And he was very much dedicated to it. And he was very much dedicated to democracy and capitalism. And he was very much dedicated to the way that our government operates and the way the office runs. And if you look at him, he's really an introvert in an extrovert's prof profession. You have to be a politician to get into office, but what he really wants to do is he wants to administer while he's in office. All of his accomplishments that he made throughout his presidency, and they were you know, numerous, were done without ever having the benefit of a Republican House of Representatives or a Republican Senate. And so once, once Watergate comes along and he realizes he can no longer accomplish things because he's never going to get them through the house or the senate rather than put the country through a long drawn out trial his his position was always that no one man or woman is more important than the country and so he leaves office as opposed to staying in for his own personal reputation or to be to continue in the office, but only be a lame duck and still be the president. He wanted the country to advance and felt it was more important to do that than, than it was for him to be the person in the office. And it, as an example of that, look at 1960. When he lost that election, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, uh, who actually preferred to be called General, even though he had been president, offered to fund the legal challenges to the, the election results in 1960. And Eisenhower's cabinet wanted to raise money for that. And Richard Nixon said, no, we're not going to have a long drawn out process where we have a president who isn't you know, really in the office because we have legal challenges to this. And there was an author named Earl Mazzo. He was writing a 12-part series for the New York Herald, and four of the, the, the series had been published talking about the extensive voter fraud that he had personally uncovered in Chicago and also in Texas. And Richard Nixon called him up in early December 1960 and said, I'd like to take you out to lunch. And they go out to lunch, and Mazo spends about 45 minutes detailing all of this fraud. And Nixon looks at him and says, you know, 
that's a really interesting story, but look at this. And then he spent about 45 minutes telling him all of the places around the world that looked to America for democracy and leadership and stability. And he told him, we cannot have a contested election in the United States. We have to have an election system that we believe in. And so you have to stop publishing these articles. And Mazel said, no, I'm going to keep publishing them. And so Nixon went to his publisher and had him, had the publisher kill the stories. But it was that concept of putting the country first, which Richard Nixon always did, even to his own detriment. Let's say you could travel 100 years in the future and take a look at the U.S. history textbooks our high school students will be reading in 2100 or beyond. And in those sections where they talk about Nixon, do you think there will be more coverage of his resignation in Watergate or his visits to China? And I, I emphasize will and not what you think should be there. No, and, you know, here's what it boils down to. Either Richard Nixon was a villain who got his just desserts, or he was an all-American person who made a tremendous miscalculation for which his legacy is stained. Either he's going to be humanized and people are going to do what President Clinton said, which is, let's take a look at this man for his entire life in full and judge him or he'll be continued to be viewed through the prism of, of Watergate. If we look at his life in full, they're going to look at the opening of China, the ending of Vietnam, the signing of Title IX, that fundamentally changed women's sports. They're going to look at the fact that, you know, he brought women into the government and he, he did it with a conscious effort. He quadrupled the size of women, the amount of women in mid-level government and in managerial positions in, in government. You know, women, women became uh, commissioners and, and chairman of, of commissions. And, and in terms of like mid-level management, they became, you know, tugboat captains, secret service agents, forest rangers, you know, air marshals, all sorts of positions that just continued on. And fundamentally change, you know, women, women standing in our country. You know, he advocated for the Equal Rights Amendment. He 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 restructured the government in the Office of Management Budget, which still stands to this day. He enacted the uh, Environmental Protection Agency and the Clean Water Clean Air Acts, and he did that because of his his youth in Southern California, growing up on the beaches and and loving the ocean and the clean water, and he thought that it was. Clean air and clean water should be a birthright of every American. He did things like, you know, with growing up with Hispanics in Southern California. So in 1969, he had the census for the first time ever include Hispanics because he knew that if you were included and could be counted and identified, then you could actually stand for for services in the country and and re receive the benefit of services in the country. And he did all of those types of things that that if we take a look at his entire administration, you know, he desegregated Southern schools, just, you know, one thing after another, which were tremendous accomplishments. All five of the man moon landings were during the Nixon administration. He created the all volunteer military that stands to this day as the finest military in the world. So it was, you know, he saved the Israel in the Yom Kippur war by, you know, single-handedly deciding to, to send the, 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 the support to the Israelis. Uh, and then the way he treated the Middle East led to the, the Middle East Accords in, in, in the Jimmy Carter administration. So it's, you know, if you really look at it in terms of, let's take a look at the, everything that happened. 
it was amazing. And what's really amazing about it is when you look at today, we're so fractured and we were then too. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. The, the country was torn apart and he's elected and he, he fights to bring people together and he's reelected in the largest landslide one of the largest landslides in American history with you know, probably the largest electoral college victory of 520 votes with 96.6% of the, the electoral college. The only person elected twice as vice president and twice as president. He sat or he, his name was on five national ballots matched only by Franklin Roosevelt. It, it, it's, it's an amazing amount of accomplishments for this California native son. When you really take a look at it, and, and so it really boils down to whether we're going to continue to villainize him over Watergate or if we're, going, if we're going to do, as President Clinton said, and look at his life in full and then judge him in full. And, and that's going to be the tipping point for 100 years from now. But I don't know which way we're going to go. I know which way we should go. Um, but I don't know. People are hard to predict. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Well, speaking of hard to predict, um, I don't think anyone would have predicted that after his resignation, he would come back into the public eye in the way he did. So can you uh, briefly kind of give us a synopsis of uh, his life after the presidency? Yeah, After the presidency, he returned to San Clemente and he you know, and he must have been a little bit of a person that believed in, I don't know if it would be luck or, or fate, but, you know, like when he ran for office, each of his campaign announcements in 1946, 48, 50, 52 were all in Pomona. So he always said, like, Pomona was good luck for him. Same thing with 60 and 62. And and he resigned the presidency on August 9, 1974, and he stayed in California five years uh, and six months exactly until February 9, 1980. Now, when he left the presidency, what is not widely known is there was actually a six-month transition period that lasted from August 9 to February 9, um, 1975. And from February 9, 1975 to February 9, 1980, that's when he basically served a, a self-imposed exile and, and, and healed himself. He, he initially had phlebitis, in in his which is a clotting of the the the, the blood veins in, in the legs, which led to having to have surgeries in the months following Watergate. And there was a period of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but I, certainly I would say you know depression, you know, very ill feeling, but also a, a tremendous you know ability to 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 dig in and work things out you know like his father would with all those jobs he worked across the country and he's he began to golf jack brennan was his chief of staff and jack brennan was on the board of the los angeles angels and he had asked gene autry if it was okay if he brought nixon to a game and gene autry and richard nixon had been longtime friends and 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 gene autry said of course you know bring him and so he started bringing him out to to angel games and he started coming out into public and a lot of it was through golf and sporting events, and and he was pleasantly welcomed in that process. And he met with Gavin Herbert, who was the chief executive officer of Allergen, and who happened to own a place in Southern California called Rogers Gardens. And Gavin Herbert used to volunteer to take care of the the the, the grounds at La Casa Pacifica. But he asked Gavin, he said, you know, 
what should I do to try and come back? And Gavin said, I don't know. Why don't you write a book? And he ended up writing nine more books. And and by 1980, he realized that as much as he loved being by the ocean in San Clemente, and he and and the ocean really did have a, a calming effect on him. It gave him a, a a sense of peace. He also knew that he had to be in New York, and he had to be back where you know that's where the United Nations is. That's 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 you know in our country, the Northeast is the center of of the universe, and in many ways, the thirteen colonies were within the Northeast. You know, the entire Ivy League is within the Northeast. And like I said, the United Nations is in New York City, and so he. He knew to return to the world stage, he needed to move to New York, which he did do. And by the way, his daughter, Trisha, and her husband, Ed, lived in New York, and, and he ended up buying a place a couple blocks away from them. And ultimately, within a few years, you know, he had moved to New Jersey, but he still had his office at 26 Federal Plaza in, in New York City. And, 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 and he used that process of rehabilitation so that he could burst back onto the scene. Um, our last question is always the same. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the listeners, either about Nixon that you uh, covered in your research or uh, books that influence you um, as someone that thinks about history? I just read Andrew Ferguson's Land of Lincoln, which came out about 10 years ago, and it is so funny. And it talks about Abraham Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln's impact on our country and our culture and uh, his travels around the United States dealing with that. And that that was a, 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 a great, great book. And I also read Robert McCullough's 1776 recently that was fascinating because, you know, people talk about Nixon going off to war as a Quaker, but they forget that Nathaniel Green was in General Washington's army as a Quaker. And, and, and I would read 1968 by Luke Nichter, The Year That Broke Politics. And Irv Gelman's 1960, The Campaign of the Century. But those are the books that I've had quite a lot of fun with lately, and I would highly recommend. Well, I'm sorry, you. that was four. You told me to tell you two. Yeah, no. <laughs> with it, when it comes to books, the more the better. I really appreciate you taking the time and for writing this fascinating book about a person that I will say I, you know, often mis have misunderstood as well. And so I appreciate uh, the scope that you've added to the conversation about Nixon. Thank you, sir. It was a real pleasure to meet you, and I appreciate the time. It's, it's, been, it's been really a wonderful experience. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.